Welcome to Susquehanna Valley Church. It is awesome to, uh, to be able to connect with you in a way that uh, is kind of unique for us this morning. I appreciate you being fluid as we deal with uncertainty in times, uh, but we still know at the end of the day that God is God, so we're going to keep preaching His Word. Uh, we're going to keep worshiping Him, and we're going to continue to look at what it means to serve Him in the situation, in the circumstances that we're in right now. And how do we actually follow after God and find, with, find, find what he has for us right here, right now for me today? And how can I move forward just saying, God, what does it look like for me to follow after you? So we're in the I Will series, and we're looking at this reality where, where God is praised in the Psalms, and that changes the way people live. So God, you're incredible. You're my vindication. You're my source of all my rightnesses in you. Uh, so I will be satisfied. I, I love what we're going to look at this morning because it really speaks to our heart's inclination to want to try to solve problems in this world by our own means instead of by going to God and looking to Him. So I'm excited for it. Uh, we're going to talk about that. I, I, just, I want you to think back to when you were a kid. I want you to go back to when you were a kid and your favorite toy. What was the thing that you like to play with the most? Now, if you're anything like me, that probably isn't one particular toy. But maybe over the years, it became one thing, and then it was another, and then it was another. Because there were different kind of phases that you went through in life where you adjusted and you liked one thing um, as opposed to the next. And, and I was thinking about this for me. Um, going back to little, little kid, it was Lincoln Logs. And then it went from Lincoln Logs to Legos to Transformers, to G.I. Joes, and then it just went all out baseball cards, and that's where I was, and that's, that's what satisfied me. Um, if, even in my own kid's life, I see kind of that tendency to, to latch onto one thing and then another. Uh, you know, it was Wild Kratts for a while, and, uh, and then it was Pokemon, and now it's just like Nerf guns, so I get shot pretty much whenever and wherever I go, uh, whenever I'm around my kids. And, and here's the thing about favorite toys and us or our kids is that when we're preoccupied with them, they tend to be things that occupy us. When we're preoccupied with them, we tend to be occupied by them. What I mean by that is they take our thoughts, they take our time, they take our money, they take our dreams. These things that we love and we enjoy are things that we don't just become preoccupied with, but we in a sense become occupied by. And I don't think that changes. I think the things in life that we become preoccupied with, things that we're intrigued by, that we dream of, that we're consumed with. I don't think that it's just that we think about them and we like them. They actually tend to occupy us as well. We're going to talk about this, that this morning because David's at a point where he could be preoccupied with his surroundings, but he understands if he's preoccupied with his circumstances in life, then he'll be occupied by fear. And he's not cool with that. So he's going to be occupied with God. And so he preoccupies himself with God. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 17. The setting of Psalm 17 is this prayer where David is crying out to God uh, for innocence and for protection. It's God, I don't deserve what's happening to me. And God, I want you to protect me uh, within these circumstances. It's often connected to, to 1 Samuel 23 where you've got David who is the up-and-coming king, and then you've got Saul, who is the very guarded, very insecure king who currently sits on the throne, 
who is scared and threat scared of and threatened by David. And, and so he has this insecurity that creates a murderous passion for David. And he's going to want to attack David. He's going to want to destroy David. And so David flees to a mountain in the desert. Saul's men locate the mountain he's on and they're surrounding the mountain and they're beginning to come upon David. And that's where Psalm 17 is written. This prayer saying, God, I don't get it. I'm innocent. I'm not trying to take over. I'm not trying to be dishonest. I'm not doing this in the wrong way. And, the, and, and I can hear these guys coming. I can hear them yelling. I can hear them searching for me. God, please protect me. Ultimately, um, as, as we look at some of the passages from Psalm 17, this is a prayer where David is praying much about what he sees, what God sees, and what they see. So, so let's read it, and then we'll talk about it. Um, Psalm 17, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 2, and we'll just jump to some different verses here. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. In verse 7, show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in me, in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Verse 11, they have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. Verse 15, as for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face when I awake. I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Let's pray. God, I pray for our eyes this morning. I pray that we would be a people who realize the impact that what we look at and what we long for has on our life. And Father, as we're in a situation where we can look at statistics and we can look at headlines, and our lives can go up and down based on every single thing that we see, I hope we lock our eyes into you. That we look at you and the circumstances that you promise us that remain absolutely constant in a world that's volatile. I pray we train our eyes so that our hearts become preoccupied with you. We ask that in your son's name. Amen. See, here, here's what I believe. What our eyes are preoccupied with is what we are occupied by. In other words, what has our eyes tends to be what has us. Th think about it. Has anything ever caught your eye in life? Maybe it's a guy or a girl. Maybe, maybe it's somebody you're married to. And when you were first seeing them, they first caught your eye. How they caught your eye, how they just you were drawn to them. Maybe it's a house that you saw that was in the country, the way that you liked it, and you just you really longed for that house. Or uh, maybe, it, uh, may, maybe it was just something that you saw and you had to have it or a picture of a vacation, and you, your eyes took your heart along for the ride. And that's, that's what we're talking about here because the eyes throughout Scripture are so incredibly important. They're treated with such, a, such a, an importance because they're saying that what happens is when you see something and it looks desirable to you, it begins to, to do more than just occupy your vision. It occupies your thoughts. It occupies your hearts. Th this, by the way, is why the Scriptures and why Jesus so emphatically warns us about lust because our eyes take our heart along for a journey that it wasn't meant for. And David, David is talking about eyes in this psalm he wants god to see him he wants him to see god he knows what others who are attacking him he knows what they're seeing 
I just want us to walk down through how this sort of eyes and what we see creates uh, a, a reality where we're preoccupied and hopefully we're preoccupied with something that's good so that it occupies us. So the first, th- the first reality is that, that David knows God in his sight, God is preoccupied with justice. Now we talked about this in depth last week, um, so we're not going to take a ton of time to, to work through that th- this morning, but the reality is that David understands that God and his central character calls himself and continues to look at things that, that are sources of injustice. And he wants God to see him, and he wants God to see his situation. This is David going, God, I know who you are. I know your history. I know that you have continually valued hearing those who are oppressed and those who are in situations that they don't deserve. God, this is me right now. I need you to see me right here, right now. It's a prayer crying for God's attention to say, look at me. I'm innocent. My motives have been pure. I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, I've I've not had a, a heart that's impure. There's been no violence in me. I've not accepted any bribes. God, look at me. We talked last week how the Psalms are so good with connecting with our own emotional experiences. How we've been there. We've had people misunderstand us. We've had people not get that this is who, that, that, that who we are is not who they think we are. And it hurts. And we do things in life to try and cover this. We try to shape other people's perspective. This is why we spend so much energy and so much effort worrying about what somebody else might think about us. Because it pains us when they think something we don't want them to think. And David goes, God, there's a whole mountain of an army encroaching in upon me. God, be here for me. This is kind of like when you, when you play with Play-Doh. I'm going back to my childhood a lot this morning. When you play with Play-Doh um, and, and you put it into a mold and you just you press it into a mold. David is pressing his faith into a situation. He's saying, God, here's what I believe. Here's what I know to be true, and here's my situation, and I'm just going to mold it in here to see what I know to be true of you right now. Because, God, it seems like it seems like evil men with evil plans are going to win. And, God, that doesn't mesh with what I know to be true of you. And so he presses his faith into the situation. He calls out to God, see me. See me right now. And as a result... He then turns his attention to, God, I wonder what you're going to do. I wonder how you're going to be there for me. See, David, David, because he calls God to see him, and he has a faith that says, I know that you will indeed see me. David has a boyhood curiosity about what God can do. This is David going, man, show me your love, God. And he's not saying it because... God, I don't think that you do love me. He's saying, God, show me your love because he's going, I'm curious as to how you're going to do it. I'm curious as to how this is going to play out. How are you, God, this is going to be interesting. Like there's a mountain about to overwhelm me. They're about to attack me, but I know your promises. I know your covenants. I know your character. I wonder what you're going to do. He's got a boyhood 
curiosity about how God's going to solve his problem. You know, when I, when I was a kid, my brothers and I, we would often go for walks in the woods and, and we'd want to lift up rocks to be able to see what was under the, the rocks. If it was like a newt or a salamander, if it was a snake, and then you'd have to say like, does it have the diamond-shaped head? Does it have the pupils that are, you know, at the end of the day, we'd always do something a little bit unsafe anyway, but try to figure out if it's venomous or not. And then there'd be like crazy looking bugs. And I remember just thinking like, I'm glad that bug is not 20 times bigger than it is because it would be the scariest thing I've ever seen. But every single rock, you're looking it up or log, you're you're pulling it to the side and you're thinking, I wonder what's on the other side of this. David is in his situation and he goes, God, I know who you are. What's on the other side of this? What's beneath this rock of what seems to be injustice? What's beneath this log that seems to be oppression? God, I know who you are. What is around the corner? It's this boyhood curiosity of of what are you going to do? And so the question that if we want to have a faith like David's, and I I hope we do, the question for us, when, when we get in these situations that we don't understand a way out, am I, are my dreams of what's going to solve this? Are they preoccupied with what God can do to solve the problem, or are they preoccupied with what I can do to solve the problem? What's my solution? Am I sitting down thinking, well, I could do this, I could do that, I could go here? Or are we going, God, what do you have in store? This is beyond my imagination. This is, this is outside of what I could think of. I wonder what you could do here used to watch the movie The Princess Bride when I was a kid. Princess Bride was just a classic movie. And uh, there's, a, there's a word that the, one of the main characters keeps saying that when he's surprised by something, he keeps going, inconceivable. You know, he looks down and he sees this guy climbing the rocks with his bare hands up the sheer cliff. And he looks down and he goes, inconceivable. And inconceivable comes up again and again. And finally, one of the other characters listens to him say, inconceivable. And he goes, you know, you keep using that word, and I don't think you know what it means. I don't think you know what it means. Because he's saying that, that you keep thinking that, that you couldn't possibly imagine this, but the reality is you could think about that. David's sitting on the mountain, and he goes, I can't conceive what you're going to do, God, but I'm curious as to what it's going to be. I've got a curiosity of what this is going to be like. In fact, when he says, show me the wonders of your love, he throws back to a statement in Genesis 18 where God tells an elderly woman named Sarah that she's going to bear children far far beyond the point in her life where she desires and experiences pleasure in that area. He goes, you're going to have kids, and she laughs. Probably like you or I would do in that scenario. She laughs. And God says, why do you laugh? Is anything too wonderful for me? And David's sitting on the mountain, and he thinks, wow, I remember Sarah. And I remember how she bared a child in her old age. And nothing was too wonderful for me. Show me your wonders, God. Let me see what you can do in my situation. It's not too hard. It's not too wonderful There's never been a time when God's been like, man, it would be cool if I could do this. 
He's never run up against a limitation to what he's capable of. You know, we kind of live on the side of life where we can look back and we can see David made it off that mountain, 1 Samuel 23. And, and, and David's probably sitting there thinking, God, how are you going to save me? How are you going to save me? We know. We know how God saves him in that moment because the enemies are about to, uh, uh, I mean, they're like right on top of him. He can hear them. They, he can feel the vibration from, from horses on the mountains. They're right there. And you know what happens? A messenger rides up the mountain, comes to Saul, and says, Saul, we got to go. Somebody just happened to start attacking our city back home, so we got to leave. And so they come down off the mountain, and they go to fight a battle elsewhere, and David survives. And David would have been like, wow, that's the wonder. That's what you were going to do. I never would have dreamed that you would have arranged for this to happen at this time, at this moment. Wow. See, when you try to solve your problems with your solutions, you are limited to your abilities. God, not so. He can work in ways that you have no idea. This is where, this is where by the way, we get our, our, we expect God to do great things because he always has value. Where we're going to say, God, we're going to be a people of faith because we know when people of faith look to you and say, God, show me your wonders, that we're going to get to see solutions that we wouldn't have thought of. We're going to get to see you do things that we would not have considered. Um, and, and so we're going to expect you to do great things. Whatever that looks like, whatever situation we're in, God, we want to be people who have faith to say, what are you going to do here? I wonder. Let me see how you're going to solve this. Let me see how you're going to grow me this morning when I sit down and study your word. Let me see how you're going to move in me when I decide to be kind and not rude to the people in my life. When I decide to give my neighbor an extra half an hour of my time as opposed to just getting the task done that I want to get done, let me see what you're going to do. I love it. We've got Vacation Bible Cool coming up, um, and it's going to be coming to you uh, virtually this year. You know what? I, I was watching some kids in my backyard the other day. We had a campfire, and we did s'mores, and like the whole, whole community of like 13 kids are are coming over, they're in our backyard, and I'm just sitting back looking at it thinking, these kids are going to be invited to a VBC in a couple of weeks. God, I wonder what you're going to do. I wonder whose lives you're going to change. Let's stop living just based on what we can see, and let's live based on what we dream, what we dream God can do. As David does this, he's preoccupied with how God's love makes him feel special. He says, God, let me be the apple of your eye. It's interesting we've translated it apple of, apple of our eye uh, because we want to pick up on kind of that phrase uh, that, that we're used to, we've used before. Really, the, the original language, Psalms would have been written in Hebrew. The original language of this is David saying, God, keep me as the pupil of your eye, which does not sound nearly as romantic. If you don't believe me, like, try that one out with your spouse, or, or try that one out next time you, you're going to ask somebody out on a date, like, hey, you are the pupil of my eye. It, it sounds a little bit redundant to me, and it, and it seems like it's not good, but maybe it'll work for you. I don't know. Uh, the idea is, like, you would guard the pupil of your eye. You would, you would keep it safe. That's why you wear safety glasses when you do something where something could, could hit it. You would keep it safe. David's saying, God, keep me safe. Keep me, notice me, notice my situation. 
And notice what's going on here because it's this kind of, God, let me be near and dear to you. Let me be special to you. In fact, when he uses the phrase, show me the wonders of your love, the word love in the original language is your steadfast love or your covenant love. God, this isn't just a love of performance that you're going to love me based on who I am, but this is a love of promise. You're going to love me based on what you've said. That's a really important distinction because we as a society, we are really good at loving based on performance. I think we're awesome at it. We are experts at loving people based on performance because it's typically self-motivated. You've done something that inspires me, that wows me, that comforts me. Hey, guess what? I'm going to love you because at the end of the day, it's really just a means of loving myself. But when we love someone based on promise, it has to be about them. It has to be about them in spite of their performance. When, when he says, God, show me the wonders of your steadfast, of your covenant love, he's saying, God, show me how you love me based on your promise, based on what you've said you would do regardless of my, my circumstances. It's a fascinating thing to sit down and think about, that God would choose to obligate himself to us with his word. I don't know about you, but I tend to prefer not to commit to an obligation if I can get away with it. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be able to do that. Oh, yeah, let me get back to you on that. But to say, I promise, now places me within a moment of obligation where my character depends on my ability to see through what I've said I will do. And so, so let me ask you, why do you, why, when you do it, when you make a promise, when you make a statement of certainty of what you're going to do, why do you do that? Why is it that you do that? What are you trying to convey more than just, hey, maybe I'll do this? What are you trying to convey with a certainty there? I, as I think about it, to me, it's either because I want something for myself or I want something for you. I want to experience something or I want you to experience it. It falls into one of those two things. Um, I promise, I promise I'll do this, so trust me. Or so give me this opportunity. Or, or so grant me this responsibility, I promise. Or, I promise I want you to know. I promise because I want to strengthen my words to communicate to you that me doing this is, is important because you're special. You're important. It, it, in that side of it, in the promise because I want you to know something, it becomes a demonstration of love. My mind is drawn to, drawn to Romans 5 and verse 8 where God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's going, I want you to know this. I want you to feel loved. I want the, the very nature of the fact that God has promised us something. He's communicating something to us that he wants us to know and feel. I, I see you as the apple of my eye. And so I promise my love to you. It will be steadfast. You know what I would love for us to do this week? I would love for us to sit down and read Scripture with no distractions. I was reading just this morning uh, about psychologists who are studying depression and happiness during quarantine and the pandemic. And, and no surprise, the number one creator of discouraging feelings is social media. I know that like totally came out of left field. Uh, but they said passively scrolling through social media is the number one, number one uh, 
source of, of discouragement. It's too political. It's too heated. Everybody's going to love or hate something. Put it down. Just put it down. And maybe for half an hour, for an hour, for two hours, get in a space and just read God's word. Read a passage about the love of God. If you want social interaction, sit down six feet away from somebody and pray with them. Read God's word with them. That's what your heart craves. Social media is just this, this, this facade to, to try to give us what we really long for, which is real, authentic interaction. But man, I got homework for you. Sit down and read about the love of God and just pray through it. Meditate on it. But honest to goodness, this is your homework. Please do this and fill your heart with what it needs to be filled with in a season where there's so many things that could distract us. Now, David could be sitting here going, I bet that guy's got a sword. Huh, sounds like those soldiers over here are getting closer. And instead he's going, God, you love me. You, you've promised that you love me. That's incredible. God's most fundamental characteristic, I feel like it just gives David a smile on the mountain. Like, you're trying to kill me, but you don't understand. I am the apple of my creator's eye. David, therefore, is preoccupied with the moment that will make it all worthwhile. And his eyes drift beyond the mountain and beyond the circumstances to an existence that awaits him in reality with God. Where he's going to talk about the sight, the sight of him seeing God, and the sight of what happens when he sees God as the scriptures talk about sort of our, our final transformation of us becoming like God in our image. That we would look like him in our love, in our heart, in our attitude, in a pure spirit of joy, that we would become like God. And so David, David's mind drifts to those two things. And the first is this seeing him. Literally, it says seeing your face. I don't know about you, but I've read through that a couple times, and I was just like, that's nice, that's poetic. No, that's real. Like, there's going to be a moment when your eyes close in this world, and your eyes open in the next, and you will visibly see God. And that's the moment that makes it all worthwhile. That you're going to get to see him. You're going to get to see him. Like, you're going to get to see him through your eyes. And everything you've ever lived for to follow after him is all worthwhile in that moment. This is not poetic. This is anticipation. This is, this is by far the highest privilege you'll ever be granted and the most happiness you'll ever attain in one moment. Highest privilege you'll ever be granted and the highest happiness you could ever attain. David's sitting on the mountain. I, I just envision him sitting back, maybe like hiding underneath a bush, and just a smile on his face. Maybe even just laughing in joy at the thought of, you guys think you're going to find me and you're going to ruin my life? You can't possibly ruin my life. Because if my eyes close for the last time, they're going to open, and I'm going to get to see God. Like, I'm going to visibly see him. And you cannot take that from me. And the circumstances cannot take that from me. 
It's more than that. It's more than just seeing God. It's that idea of seeing his likeness in David himself. First John 3, 2 kind of picks up on this idea. It says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Charles Spurgeon picks up on this concept and, and he defines it in a way that I think is really beautiful. He says, if you would have went into the Sistine Chapel uh, to see Michelangelo's work a month before it was done, you'd walk in and you would see scaffolding, you'd see planks, you'd see posts and, and cloths, and you'd see dirt, you'd see mortar, mortar you, you'd see paint dripped on the floor. You, you would just, I mean, the beauty would be there, but you'd have to look around to see it. You'd have to remove some, you'd, you'd kind of have to like peek through and say, oh, okay, I, that's not really done, but I see what you're doing there, like the hand of God's reaching out. I see, I see what you're going for, but it's not really all that it is because there's stuff in the way. But the day after the work was done and everything was removed and you walked in and you see the work completed, you see the beauty without the clutter, without the imperfection, without the flaws, and you just get lost in it because you see it as it was meant to be the whole time. Spurgeon says this, he says, it was as if heaven itself had been opened and you looked into the courts of God and angels. Speaking of that moment when all the work was been removed, that's going to be when you see God. The scaffolding of your life is gone. All the imperfections, all the spills have been cleaned up. And not only do you see God, but you see yourself in the construction project finish, the art finish, the way that God has intended to, to be. You'll be everything you wish you were. Every moment that you get frustrated with yourself and you say, why did I say that? Man, I wish I could have that back. Every little bit of you that's frustrated that you struggle with the same thing again and again and you wrestle with the guilt and you wrestle with the frustration, you wrestle with the embarrassment, you wrestle with the disappointment of not being who you wish you were despite the fact that in your mind you're so convinced you should be that person, it's gone. And you instantly become everything that you always wish you were. And David is just in love, not only with God, but in love with the idea that what he invested in is all going to be worthwhile. And it's going to be exactly as he wants to be seen. And so that inspires David then to notice the contrast between how he chooses to live and how the men who are engaging upon him, how they choose to live. And if you read it in verse 14, he says that, that my attackers, their reward is in this life. That their portion is in this life. As if they're choosing to eat all that they can consume in this life. And they have no concept of waiting for, for what, ha what God has in store. And it prompts David in this moment to look at them and to look at their passion for everything that they could have right now. For vengeance, for pride, for posterity, for, for just everything they could consume now. And David is struck by the contrast and he says, I see you. I see how you choose to live. I see that I could likewise live that way, but I'll pass. As for me, I'll live beyond this life. I'll live for God. 
I will be satisfied not with what could please me in a moment. I'll be satisfied with seeing your likeness. As for me, I'm one who waits for the next life. Now, I love this, this psalm. The more that I look at it, the more I pray through it, the more I love it. Because you have so much of Scripture like before this moment and after this moment has just kind of pulled into this moment. You've got, we, we mentioned how he references back to, to Abraham and Sarah. And, and what's cool about this statement, as for me, you might know it because it actually is referenced by a young leader centuries after that. Where a young man named Joshua is saying this in Joshua 24. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, the, the real God or the false God in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me. He picks up David's line. He says, David was on a mountain and made a choice. I'm standing before a group of people. Make a choice. What's your as for me moment? Like, what's your as for me? What do you bet on for your satisfaction? Is it as for me, I'm going to solve my problems like everybody else in the world? As for me, I'm going to keep getting distracted by everything in this life because I think this life is, is going to be better than what heaven's going to be. What's your as for me? David goes, as for, as for me, I'm going to see your face. And the moment that I do, all the work will be perfectly completed and beautifully completed. As for me, it's a statement of self-declaration to say this is where my satisfaction will be. As for me, I'm not going to be like other people because I understand, I've learned in life what it is that truly brings me satisfaction. The other day, I was walking through Home Depot, picking up some stuff for a project that I was doing uh, at the house. And um, you know how they have the music playing in the background, and you don't really notice it. And well, I was walking around, and uh, and there was a song that came on uh, the the radio there, and and I started to kind of like sing along because I was like, "Huh, I know this song." This song it was Allison Road by the Gin Blossoms, um, and I was I was enjoying it. And I thought, you know, this is kind of odd. I don't usually enjoy music that I hear played on the radio. And then I stopped and I was like, now I wonder why, like, why do I, why do I not often hear music that I enjoy? And then it dawned on me. It's because of how old the song is. And then I thought, oh no. Oh no. And I quick researched and I, I, I typed in Allison Road and 1991 I was like 91 that's not bad that's like 10 years that's 30 years ago are you kidding me and then I then I did a search on the internet that I wish I didn't search and I googled how old how old does a song have to be to be an oldie 15 years not only do I like an oldie but I like an oldie that's been an oldie for 15 years and I realized in that moment, I've become my dad. I listened to oldies. This is not good. Wow. This is like, I thought the, the gray hair was just because of life. I think gray hair is connected to the music you like. I like oldies. My hair's turning gray. This is, this is not good. And then, then I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, 
with what I'm talking about today, with what we're preaching about, and what brings satisfaction, I've gotten to the point in, in life where oldies sound good. What have I learned about satisfaction in 38 years of life? What have I learned about it? I've learned I keep getting tricked. I learned I keep getting deceived. That Satan wants me to think things that are going to satisfy me, but they won't. I've learned that I'm prone to try and satisfaction, find satisfaction in my control. And how I can feel like I'm okay with the situation based on me knowing what's going to happen. I've learned that I can find satisfaction based on other people performing the way that I want them to perform in life. And I've learned at the end of the day that none of it is nearly as satisfying as the love of God. Now, I hope we learn lessons like that. I hope we understand that our soul wants more than what this world can offer. Here's the reality. To be, to be chiefly satisfied with this world is to be satisfied with a bucket of water in front of the ocean. To be chiefly, chiefly satisfied with this world is to, be, is to be satisfied with a bucket of water in front of the ocean. It's no wonder we look at the water and we're like, come on, is this all you have for me? Is this it? Because we look at this world and we're going, why can't I be happy? Why, why, why am I not satisfied? And God's going, you're looking at the wrong thing. Take your eyes off the bucket of water and look into my face. And you'll find satisfaction. You will see his face and you will bear his likeness. Let's pray. Our God and Savior, you are incredible. And Lord, there is so much in life that wants to steal our attention, that wants to trick us into a false and empty satisfaction. God, I pray that we learn from David. We learn from our past. That we be a people of wisdom. And understand, wisdom doesn't, wisdom doesn't present itself on social media. It presents itself in your word. And God, satisfaction doesn't present itself in in headlines, it, it comes from your word. I pray that we would have a hunger to see what you have waiting for us in your scriptures. That we'd open up the Bible or we'd, we'd take out our phone and, and open up the Bible app and just, God, with a boyhood curiosity or a girlhood curiosity, we just, we'd say, God, what do you have for me? And we'd pause and delight in you. God, I pray that we train our hearts to see you. And as a result of what we see, that we would be satisfied. In your son's name we pray. Amen.